Welcome to the Film Comment podcast. I'm Devika Girish, the co-deputy editor of Film Comment, and this week we have a special two-parter episode, spotlighting a pair of upcoming must-see programs in New York City. In the first half, Clint and I chat with Jean-Michel Frodon, an esteemed French critic and scholar, a former editor of Cahiers du Cinéma, and the author of many books, including most recently The World of Gia Janke. Jean-Michel has curated a revelatory series for the Museum of Modern Art titled Forgotten Filmmakers of the French New Wave. In our conversation, Jean-Michel tells us about the origins and mutations of the term the French New Wave, the influence of the Algerian War and anti-colonial movements in that period, the intermixing of documentary and fiction in new wave practice, and much more. In the second part of the episode, we interview Inne Prakash, the founder of Prismatic Ground, a new festival for experimental documentary that's now in its second year. Inne began Prismatic Ground last year amid the upheavals of the pandemic as an attempt to reimagine film festivals from a more radical, ethical, and global perspective. Inne tells us about his curatorial philosophy, why it was important for him to have the festival stream online all over the world for free, and some highlights from this year's hybrid program, including The Afterlight by Charlie Shackleton, Declarations of Love by Tiff Reckham, Squish by Tulipop Sanjaron, and more. So today we are incredibly thrilled to have a very special guest on the podcast, a curator and author, a very multi-talented person who is calling in from Paris, France. Jean-Michel, would you like to introduce yourself? Hello, my name is Jean-Michel Frodon. I am a film critic and a journalist. I'm I've been writing about cinema for more than 40 years. Uh, I was an editor for Daily Le Monde in Paris and then editor-in-chief of the Cahiers du Cinéma for several years. Now I write online on a a website called slate.fr, which is the French uh, cousin of slate.com. And... uh, I also wrote about, uh, I'm afraid, like 25 books about cinema uh, so so far, uh, including, uh, uh, well, those who, which are translated in uh, in English. Uh, it's one about uh, Holocaust uh, cinema, the cinema, cinema and Shoah. Uh, and the most recent one, which was translated, is about the Chinese director, Chia Zonke. Uh, the world of Chazanker, but um, I have also uh, been writing about uh, French cinema, Chinese cinema, uh, and uh, different topics. And I'm also a professor. I'm teaching in several universities: Political Science Institute, uh, Saint Andrews University in Scotland, and I'm also uh, I happen to be. Uh, so-called curator. It's more I'm an amateur as a curator, but I enjoy it a lot, both in the exhibition, in museums, and in programming as now. And that's kind of the impetus for this conversation. Well, you mentioned already this book, the Giajanka book, The World of Giajanka, forthcoming from Film Desk Books. 
Uh, but another reason we want to talk to you is about this series that is going to happen at MoMA um, starting on May 4th and running through June 2nd, I believe. Um, the Forgotten Filmmakers of the French New Wave. Uh, and it's a really fascinating lineup. I think 40 films, over more than 40 films, is that right? Yeah, more than 40, including short, of course. Right. You cover a very, very wide range of filmmakers. Yes, the idea was to to give access to a large amount of important, to my view, filmmakers and films uh, that were made at this very significant moment that was the turn of the 50s and the 60s in France, uh, which is very much well known under this name of New Wave, French New Wave, and appropriately. But uh, French New Wave is widely associated to a few names, which deserves to be the most well-known names. I'm not questioning that Jean-Luc Godard, François Truffaut, Alain René, Agnès Varda, uh, Eric Romer, etc., are the most important directors of this moment and the most significant, but there were actually a lot more who remained, I would say, it's not exactly forgotten, I would say, who remained under the radar. Uh, who were not acknowledged. If we accept the idea that New Wave is associated with the notion of modern cinema, of something renewing cinema language, they took part in it one way or another, and they deserve to be seen. Some of them are pretty well known, actually, but maybe more in France than uh, abroad, uh, like uh, Jacques Rosier, for instance, some or Georges Franju. Some of them are really uh, almost forgotten everywhere, including in France. So it was a great opportunity that was given to me by uh, MoMA and George Siegel, uh, MoMA curator, uh, to share uh, discoveries of all these people. So, you know, I, I wanted to start by asking you about the term new wave which, you know, over the last many decades, it, it's used kind of loosely now, you know, and I don't know if people exactly remember how it came about and what it was describing at the time. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the origin of the term and also the ways in which this series maybe challenges our understanding of the term or expands. Absolutely, you're totally right. The, the, the word new wave, was created not about cinema, but much more generally about a change, a shift in the French society at the end of the 50s, which was actually pretty natural. It was a new generation uh, coming into a business, any, any kind of business, political business, cultural business, uh, uh, economic business. Uh, uh, there was the immediate aftermath of World War II and at this moment, this journalist, woman journalist, Françoise Giroud, a leading figure in French journalism at the time, created the word new wave to depict uh, this uh, very uh, um, predictable but very significant at the same time change of uh, generation, but also of behavior at large in, in every part of 
life. And then very soon it was appropriated about cinema to depict what was happening at the moment in French cinema. What was happening at the moment is uh, of, was happening on several levels. The first one was actually the same meaning that was used about society at large by Francois Giroux, depicting that the fact that in a few years, more than 200 young French directors directed their first feature film, which was huge, never happened before, never happened after. Uh, so it was a mass movement of renewal of generation, but which doesn't say much about what films they were doing, making and uh, it was just, they were young, they were new, but in it by itself. So this was the first meaning of French New Wave. But then inside this movement, there was a very small group, five men, young men, Jean-Luc Godard, François Truffaut, Eric Romer, Jacques Rivette and Claude Chabrol, who were all film critics in Cahiers du Cinéma, who made their directorial debut at this moment, and who were embodying a radical proposal inside uh, film directing, with many differences among them, actually, in the way they directed films, but nevertheless, in sense of a small group, which had been discussing fiercely the French, the classical French cinema of that time during the 50s in Cahiers du Cinéma, and then uh, who were turning into filmmakers and very good film filmmakers who were acknowledged as such, even by those who were pissed off by uh, their attacks against uh, the, the previous ways to, to make films. So this is the second meaning of French New Wave. And then there is a third meaning of French New Wave, which does include these five guys, plus a few others who are not part of this small group from Cahiers du Cinéma, they are connected with them, like Alain René, like Chris Marker, like Agnès Varda, like Jacques Demy, whom are the leading figure of what could be called the modern surge of French cinema at the turn of the 50s and 60s. This is, these were the three meanings of French New Wave, which are like a, puppets one in the other, so, so to speak, the most important being the one in the middle, the modernity of language cinema, wherever it comes from. What I did propose here is to expand this notion without going back to the large one, the original one, because most of those who made their first film at this moment either made bad films or very conventional films or didn't make any, any other films afterward. It was just uh, this moment where everybody wanted to make films. So there is this uh, new uh, level of French new waves, which is conveyed by this program I present in MoMA. When you expand the definition out to include these, you know, 200 or so filmmakers, what are the unifying features of this movement once you expand this definition? And also, are there formal are there formal qualities as well, or is it just historical? No, the 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 two hundreds uh, to call them this way. Their only uh, common uh, element is that they are new. They have, they arrive at the same time. They are almost young. Not all of them, but the vast majority is young. Some of them have been waiting. Uh, bit more to become 
first time director, but uh, they, they, so they, they have nothing more in common. Those I uh, introduce who are about uh, 25 uh, other names than the famous nine, the magnificent nine I mentioned, Godard, Truffaut. Uh, they uh, bring in something new in filmmaking at the moment, uh, but in many various ways. Some of them are very close to this uh, famous new wave uh, director or are going to be the second generation. They are, they are just uh, beginning with uh, short films when the other are already making their first feature, etc., like Philippe Garel, uh, Jean Eustache, uh, or uh, uh, Jean-Marie Straub, for, for instance, while uh, some of them uh, have different kind of uh, modern approach, which can include the use of documentary. So many of them are experimenting with cinema in the sense that they have a belief that through the cinema device, the, the cinema system, you can make experiments which have not been made yet. And you can go in direction which are outside of the regular, uh, either a fiction uh, like a novel or a documentary like uh, journalism, uh, but to, to, to build um, visual, audiovisual uh, proposal that elaborate from the resources of the cinema techniques in many directions. You mentioned Cahiers uh, du Cinema, and I wanted to ask about the influence of criticism and Cahiers on this movement as well. And uh, watching some of these films, one of my favorites is the uh, Luc Moulet short. Luc Moulet, yes. Luc Moulet, yeah. Mm -hmm. the, Luc, uh, the Luc Moulet film, Un Steak Trop Cui. Is that, oui. is that correct? <laughs> trop cuit. Trop cuit. Un steak trop cuit. Yes. Mm -hmm. I've often been mocked for my French pronunciation on this podcast, so <laughs> please have at me. An overcooked uh, steak. <laughs> yes, an overcooked steak. I, I, I love his films, and this one is has always been a favorite. It's just sort of a almost Marx Brothers-like mm -hmm. comedy short film. Mm -hmm. But at one moment, one of the uh, characters decides is go, looking for some uh, something to use for as toilet paper and she pulls out a copy of I think Cahiers du Cinema yes. <laughs> and decides that that's what she's going that's the magazine that she's willing to use for toilet paper um, and Moulet was a critic for Cahiers at the time is that, is that correct? Yes he, he was a movie critic in Cahiers du Cinema he was very close he, it was a joke uh, about what they had in common it was like a uh, Self-deprecating uh, joke, kind of. Yes, but uh, it's, it's a way to, to uh, relate with Cahiers du Cinéma without being too, too uh, conventional or too mm -hmm. respectuous, uh, because clearly the spirit of uh, this, uh, this short film and Moulet's spirit uh, at large is, uh, is never on the side of being too, too, too respectuous to, to anything. But, uh, and he's also, is. Uh, uh, appearing Moulet in this film in disguise as Jean-Luc Godard. He, he wears uh, <laughs> the, the glasses. Uh, and, uh, the, he's, he's playing with that. It, it's a 
Freedom of speech, uh, it, it's, it's the most uh, game for, for our students uh, to, 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 to a certain extent. Uh, there are more uh, serious uh, dimension in this, uh, in this uh, freedom of uh, attitude and the freedom of uh, using cinema language, uh, including a militant one, because one of the major uh, dimension of what happened then is that it's happening during a war. France is at war in, in Algeria, at least until, until 1962. Uh, and uh, it's important for me that in the program I propose there are several films which are directly related with the war in Algeria uh, in various ways, fictional, documentary, and uh, militant. Do you think from a historical perspective that the war and the rupture caused by that war possibly could be one of the motivating forces behind this anarchic plan. Not not directly, but but it was very much present because uh, it was war, but it was uh, based on the draft. Uh, young people were sent uh, to to war or to 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 Algeria so to, uh, for thirty months. It was long. Uh, so it was part of everyday life of, of the French population uh, every day. And since most of these films deal with uh, the youth, with uh, the, young, the young people, uh, it's a, it was a major dimension of being young in France in the late 50s and early 60s meant go to war, at least for men, for, for male, but uh, also as we see in several films, uh, it's also about uh, the women, the, the girls, because their boyfriends, their brothers uh, are, are going too. So every everyone is involved or is related with this dramatic event, which was even more dramatic of being not exactly untold, but not addressed at the real level of what was happening at the moment. It was like minim minimized. Sort of in the background, cumulatively, as you watch these, you notice this that the war is sort of happening in the background of people's lives as they're... They are in the background, but they, they kind of pop, popped in, uh, in, in in many films or in some of the films, including uh, film noir like uh, Le Combat dans l'Ile by Alain Cavalier and uh, The Unvanquished also by, by, by Cavalier, uh, which are a uh, fiction story with uh, murders and... Uh, and uh, hideout and a lot of uh, action actually starring Alain Delon right is that yes the, the second one is starring Alain Delon the first one is starring uh, Jean-Louis Trintignant uh, both are really uh, amazing uh, also in the level of uh, acting and, uh, and uh, physical uh, presence but also uh, more uh, with less glamorous uh, elements but uh, addressing uh, at the end of uh, Cléo uh, by, by, by Agnès Varda, of course, uh, the, the, the male character is a soldier who is going back on the evening uh, to, to, to Algeria. Uh, there's a love story uh, is, is uh, doomed to, to, to be stopped uh, immediately after it started. Or in uh, Adieu Philippine, which is a very important new French new film by Jacques Rosier, uh, the lead uh, character as a guy he is uh, leaving to Algeria just after his holidays uh, on the Riviera that he's having which is most of the film 
so so uh, it is there uh and they have also there is a very important scene of a discussion uh, uh, during a family dinner between the, the ones who are coming back from algeria the one who are willing not to go it's, it's there it's a inhabiting life of of, uh, of many many people at the moment so it, it is a dimension which needed to be present and of course there is this film which was forbidden by french censorship for two decades uh, uh, about the, the, the killing of Algerians by the French police in Paris in uh, October 1961. What was the title of that one? October à Paris, October in Paris, uh, by, by Panigel, which is a important film about an important historical event, but also these are uh, places where cinema is inventing its own language to address uh, events that are happening in a lot of ways and Panigel would not have done the film this way uh, 20 years earlier. Maybe he would have made something about a tra tra tragic event, but there is also creativity in the way of using documents, interviews that relate with this moment of modernity, if this is the correct word, that is this moment. You know, something I thought was really interesting, in addition to the films that you included that are about the Algerian war or, you know, or make that element more prominent, is that there's also films like um, Afrique sur Sign, Africa on the Sign, which is by the Africa Group. And the filmmakers listed as directors include Jacques Melo Kane, Mamadou Sarr, and Pauline Soumanou Vieira. Again, <laughs> apologies for my pronunciation. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. And I was really struck by the inclusion of that film because it's famously known as, you know, one of the first short films produced by Africans in Paris. It was made in 1955, really early on. And actually, African and North African filmmakers are not often included in our conception of the new wave. And the fact that you included this film really expanded my idea of what the new wave could mean because it was also a time where decolonization was taking place in many parts of the world it was a time of a lot of immigration uh you know these uh, elements are represented in africa on sign they talk about uh they contrast life in africa and life in the golden you know fantasy city of Paris. There are scenes in the Latin Quarter where they're talking about both racial tension and racial harmony uh, with this documentary vocabulary that does seem now watching it within the scope of this program, it really reminds me of many new wave films that capture Paris, uh, the city with a kind of immediacy. Uh, I was wondering if you could talk about the, you know, who the Africa group were and about your decision to include this film. So when when you when you said that uh, there were you had no notion of the presence of African and Arabic uh, filmmakers in French New Wave, but you could even say French cinema at large. You were right because there are almost none. There are very few, and uh, hopefully somebody will find out and propose someday a little more than I do now. But uh, I am not even sure it's going to happen because it. Uh, it's very much limited and it is obviously in itself a major issue, the absence of, um, of these films uh, in, 
in the French colonies, it was forbidden by law for natives to touch a camera, to, to make films, uh, very until uh, at least uh, the end of World War II, and actually, uh, and then begins the process, the decolonization process, which is more or less going to, to complete most of itself by the 1960. Uh, and there were very few. And I, I, I feel very important to show Afrique sur scène, this uh, short film you, you mentioned, uh, because it is sometimes a very important founding film for uh, African uh, filmmakers, let's say at least uh, French language or uh, Af Afri uh, African, black African. Uh, filmmakers, but it can sound to our ears quite shocking when he, the first sentence of the film is that the capital of Africa is Paris, uh, which was, yeah, yes, uh, which at the same time told something true. Uh, this is where being a young Af intellectual, African intellectual or a, with a will to change things, uh, you had to go to Paris to try to make things happen before hopefully going back to the country where, where you come from or the area you come from at a time where there were not countries in the complete sense it would uh, achieve with the decolonization and that it does uh, translate both this movement, these this, this people were uh, directly connected with the French, uh, well, an African magazine based in Paris uh, uh, as well, which was called Présence Africaine, which was instrumental in the building of a, the decolonial identity, uh, both for uh, the, the uh, the African uh, uh, and and for uh, the the uh, um, IT and uh, the, the West French West Indies uh, as well with major figures who are poets like uh, Aimé Césaire uh, at uh, at the moment and which was also instrumental in creating an important film in this context which is uh, Statues Also Die by Alain René. And uh, it was and and Chris Marker, which was a, a commission by Présence Africaine. It was produced by Présence Africaine originally. So there there is this relation between Paris, the colonial power and country, the, the dominating country, uh, obviously, but where are gathering the the strongest and the most creative and innovative. Uh, opponents of the colonial, but with this relation of uh, fascination for the French culture and, and for the French Revolution and the ideas that they should bring back the, uh, the notions created by the French Revolution for French to Africa, uh, which is disputable and can be, of course, uh, and now we have other ways to think about uh, all this, basically. So I think it's an important uh, testimony about the way people were thinking about that at the moment. And at the same time, we have access with, to uh, the, well, the, the, the 
physical presence, the behavior, what the music they were listening to, the way they were uh, relating to, to each other uh, among Africans and with um, French non-African uh, uh, person inside Paris. Having these uh, elements, you also very appropriately mentioned that these films Afrique sur scène is a documentary, uh, but also new wave uh, fictions are largely documentaries as well. If you see Breathless, you see a lot about the life in Paris in 1960. If you see 400 Blow, you see a lot. There, there is this, which comes from Italian neorealism, uh, obviously, but which is uh, welcoming, which is happy to have the, the, all the, the elements that do come from the real life as part of the story being told, whatever it is. Yeah, I, I almost felt like this film, uh, Afrique Sur Sign, was like, is a bridge between Breathless and 400 Blows and these classic films of the new wave, and then films by Jibril Diop. Uh, Mambeti, like Tukibuki or Solelo, you know, by Med Hondo. I feel like this film kind of knits them all together for me. And so I thought it was really revelatory in that way. Yeah, no, you're, you're, you're right. The, 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 director, the African directors you, you mentioned uh, show up uh, much later. Uh, they, it will take a long time for a Black Africa let's say West Africa, the French ex-colonized Francophone uh, part of uh, Africa to, to, to really uh, build a, uh, its own cinema. Uh, Ousmane Samben, who is maybe the, 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 the first, who is the first leading figure in, in, uh, in African uh, uh, cinema, uh, will really uh, start in the second part of the 60s only to, to be able to, to, to make films. And, and of course, Chibril Diop-Mambeti will take even longer. You mentioned this influence of documentary and the, the fact that Breathless can, you know, is a document of its time. And uh, it, you made me think of the uh, Georges Franjou short that you include, La Première Nuit, which is tells the story of like a young boy who runs away from home and spends the night on the dreaming on on this on the metro it's essentially like a document of the metro at the time and you get this incredible um, vision of what life was like what what the what the machinery was like too but this also made me oh, want to ask about so you've included a lot of shorts in this program and i wanted to ask you what the role of shorts was in this time how were these films seen originally? Were they distributed as lead-ins to features? And also, how were they funded or produced? Was it state sources? The stories of Godard's shorts being and how he funded them are, are well known now. But yeah, though this is not not uh, really representative of Godard shorts and stealing money from uh, from different. Places, uh, but uh, no uh, short films were instrumental in the, the rising of modernity in in French cinema since the very end of the 1940s, with a law uh, regulation uh, in cinema which meant uh, mandatory to have 
short films together with feature film in any uh, commercial screening and a system that would uh, convey money from the, the production company that were producing the, the feature film to also help uh, to make, uh, which was one of the ways, but there were also a lot of uh, bodies, uh, companies, uh, administration that would use short film in, in various ways. Uh, one of the most beautiful Alain René short film, uh, Jean Lestiren, is produced by a, a chemical uh, company as a promoting not, not, it's not advertising itself. The name doesn't even appear in the film. It's not like advertising, but it, 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 it's more promoting uh, a modern use of uh, technical uh, devices and the way you can play with colors and with uh, uh, changing uh, mat materiality itself uh, uh, with science, this, this kind of thing. And there was this huge movement in the early 50s where people like uh, Chris Marker, like Jacques Demy, like Agnès Varda, like Alain René uh, were already uh, major directors before directing their first feature film and acknowledged as such. Uh, plus a lot of other ones that were, some of them would remain unknown or almost unknown, but because they, they didn't get the, the, the visibility, but there, there was this very important uh, uh, film short film festivals in uh, in Tours, the city of Tours in Paris, in in France, where uh, you you would discover many of the members of the coming generation of, of uh, interesting filmmakers, including most of those uh, I'm showing there except those who come from Cahiers du Cinéma, who have a di different uh, school. Their school was film, film criticism more than short film. And this, those, so their films are more properly kind of independently made on the side of their, as like a corollary to their film criticism. Mm -hmm. You know, there's something you mentioned in the introductory essay you wrote for MoMA when, where you were um, kind of tracing all the various ways in which we can trace the new wave uh, across different filmmaking practices. And one thing you mentioned was how some of these early forgotten filmmakers went on to become commercial or conventional filmmakers. And I'd love to hear a little more about that. Like how did the new wave influence the classical or conventional or popular French cinema? I feel like we don't even get to really see the popular French, like today we don't, the popular French cinema of that era is more erased than the, than the new way. Yeah. Don't don't be too sad about it because uh, <laughs> you you had enough uh, conventional cinema of your own. Uh, so uh, as much uh, I am convinced that uh, uh, original proposals from abroad should be more widely seen uh, everywhere, including in the in in the US, uh, but as, as much I think the conventional cinema is more or less the same everywhere. And uh, you, you, you already have much more than you need uh, from, from your own country. So I'm not so sure it's necessary, but in the program, uh, I have uh, uh, chosen two films by, by two directors 
who would become conventional and very popular uh, film, filmmaker later on, almost immediately after Tazis, but who uh, directed a, one uh, short film and, and the, the, the other one uh, feature film with some new wave perfume, so to speak, uh, that, that was, that, uh, was uh, interesting as a, as a trace that new wave was in the air, so to speak. Robert Enrico, uh, who directed uh, actually this short film, which is based on a, uh, which, which is based on, a, on a Ambrose Pierce uh, short, short story uh, in the US uh, during the American Civil War, uh, the occurrence at Old Creek Bridge, uh, which is a, there is a research in, in, the, in the style, in the use of cinema language, which is going to vanish completely in the uh, next Enrico's work after, after that, and he will become a very uh, mainstream, uh, successful uh, French director. And uh, pretty much similarly, uh, Edouard Molinaro, uh, who will also become a very, uh, let's say, uh, basic uh, French commercial uh, director, but until one dans la ville, witness in the city, he is, does have a kind of a new wave flavor uh, related with documentary. It's a, it's a thriller uh, about a, a murderer who is chased by taxi drivers, but through this plot, we circulate in the city. This is real, the real city. We see a lot of uh, the, the, the streets of Paris at the time, the, the cafe where the taxi drivers used to join, the way it works. So it has a kind of a factual depiction of, of reality using a rather light uh, means, cinema means, uh, that uh, connects it to a certain extent with the spirit of the French New Wave uh, at, the, at, the, at the moment. This is 1959, so exactly the year of 400 Blows uh, and, uh, and uh, Hiroshima Mon Amour. And uh, I believe that the spirit of the time uh, has some effects in the way he directed it, uh, Molinaro directed it at the moment that will vanish very soon afterward. Well, I think we're at the end of our time, but Jean-Michel, this has been just wonderful, you know, just such a great deep dive into the thinking that went behind your series. I think, you know, there's always tons of French new wave series in New York and, you know, the world over all the time. It's a movement that we can never forget but I think your series is really kind of bringing something new and changing how we think of this term and this time period in cinema so thank you so much for joining us thank you thanks to you thanks to your invitation you're listening to the film comment podcast sign up today for the film comment letter it's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comments editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. Welcome to the Film Comment podcast. Today we have a special guest, a programmer, curator. Ine, do you want to introduce yourself? 
Yeah, uh, thank you, Clinton. Thank you, Devika, so much for having me. My name's Inay Prakash, and I'm a film curator programmer based in New York. I am the founder and director of Prismatic Ground. Um, and then I also work as a cinema programmer at Maisel's Documentary Center in Harlem and am uh, curatorial lead for the San Diego Asian Film Festival. So this is the second edition of the of Prismatic Ground, right? Kicking off Wednesday, May 4th. Can you talk a little bit about where your idea for this festival came from in its original iteration last year and how you developed this year's program and any any ways that it might be different than the previous iteration? Yeah, absolutely. So Prismatic Ground was a project born of deep pandemic dreaming. Uh, I sort of started kicking it around in summer of 2020. And here was the situation is basically I was working part-time, um, collecting unemployment and um, had bizarrely more because there was nothing to do and the unemployment had more money and more time than I'd really ever had before, uh, which gave me the space to kind of think about creating something of my own for better or worse, film festivals are what I know. Um, you know, it's a love-hate relationship, but ultimately, uh, you know, in a world uh, where people seem to care less and less about movies, the idea that there are these places where you can go and celebrate them with the filmmakers and with other people who love them for days on end, it's just, I mean, it's ecstasy, right? Um, so I uh, had always thought maybe of starting a film festival, but the, the circumstances had to be right. And all of a sudden, um, you know, I had a little bit of savings um, and solicited donations as well. Um, and then took the stimulus payments and decided that, okay, the one thing I said I would always do if I started a film festival is pay filmmakers, which a lot of them um, don't do. So I decided, all right, I'm gonna offer every filmmaker a hundred dollar screening fee. Um, the other uh, factor is that I felt like a lot of the um, larger institutions, uh, not gonna name names here, but were kind of phoning in the online experience, um, treating it as a stopgap until uh, they were able to return in person. And to me, that was a missed opportunity. You know, I'm from Michigan. I didn't really, even though there are great experimental fests there like Ann Arbor, I didn't grow up seeing experimental work or thinking that it was something for me. That's something you hear a lot of people say, like, uh, oh, I feel like experimental films are not for me. But when I got, when I moved to New York, I started going to places like Anthology and Light Industry and MoMA and suddenly realized that this was the work I really responded to. I had been working in the doc space. You know, I worked with a, a festival at a, run by the Detroit Free Press, Free Press called Free Film Festival. Um, but suddenly I found myself gravitating towards the more experimental side of that. And um, seeing that there were so many filmmakers working in this in-between space where they were creating work that was far too experimental for traditional doc fests, but wasn't exactly avant-garde either. Um, and so I wanted to create a space to celebrate that work um, with room on either side of the spectrum. So of course there's stuff that's a little more doc oriented and I love the, the hardcore avant-garde stuff as well. Um, so, uh, you know, I decided I would craft an online experience that allowed as many people uh, to be exposed to this work as possible and the belief that if people can just see it with low stakes they'll respond to it and understand that it is for everybody so i decided to make the festival online for free and to design it in a way that maybe felt a little diy because it was but also um 
that you know was a little more visually engaging and and fun to scroll through. It ended up looking almost like a um, sort of a visual magazine of sorts. If people want to see the original festival, they can go to prismaticground.com slash year one archive. I love the DIY aesthetic, but I think that also I love that it also kind of transfers over to the uh, to the films themselves. I think you've said before you gravitate towards work that's sort of rough around the edges, and I think. There's very few few festivals and few venues where that work can really find a place to shine. So, And, you know, another thing I wanted to just mention in terms of the logistics that was maybe a little unique about Prismatic was when all these festivals were doing virtual stuff, they were geoblocking pretty aggressively. There was a lot of conversation and industry discussion around how to even carve out that virtual space right in a way that corresponded to physical festivals and something you did was all the films were available to view for free globally and I believe that's true to a certain extent this year obviously the physical screenings are uh, location bound but you've made an effort to uh, make sure that the online screenings are available worldwide Uh, and I'd love to hear you talk a little more about that decision and also what logistics go into that? Is that really very challenging to arrange? Yeah. So, uh, you know, for me, there were two reasons not to geoblock. One was access. I wanted as many people to see the films as possible. Um, And two was, uh, I see myself not as sort of an apolitical institution the way many are. The institution is me, it embodies my values. And so why acknowledge borders, the violence of borders, if I didn't have to? It seems almost goofy to me to, to do that in a, when it's not required. And the reason a lot of institutions require it um, has to do with premier status, which is another thing I was pushing back against. What I found is that uh, most of the filmmakers were happy to have their work online, not geoblock. And the big question was, because I reached all those people online, um, last year, I wanted to keep that aspect of the fest. Big question was now that we're in a different phase of the pandemic, would people still want um, to share their work online? And the answer seems to be a resounding yes. I gave filmmakers the option uh, and most of them said they chose to have, they would choose to have their work online as well as in person at the festival. So if you check out the lineup, there are a few films that say in person only, um, but the majority of them will be available online for free from May 4th to 8th the entire festival dates. And my hope is that people still cherish um, the in-cinema experience enough that New Yorkers will come out anyways and see these films on the big screen. Correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, some many of the in-person only events are in-person only because of the nature of the projections, uh, because of the nature of the material being screened, right? Not necessarily due to the preference of the of the filmmaker to restrict access. That is the case for some films. There are various films playing on 16 millimeter. Um, almost every program, uh, which you know we call Waves, um, has at least one uh, film playing on 16 millimeter. The opening night uh, film is on 35 millimeter. And actually that movie cannot play online. The Afterlight by Charlie Shackleton, yes. But by Charlie Shackleton, it exists as a single 35 millimeter print. Um, I mean, that was super exciting. I got an email from Charlie late last year and he said, um, or, you know, late summer, he said, I need you to watch this now and and decide if you want to play it because soon I'll be deleting all digital traces of it. What was his thinking there? Yeah. So his thinking, he had taken essentially uh, clips from lots of old movies, you know, mostly from the 40s, featuring kind of incidental moments from these movies that in a way make it look like the characters are at converging at this bar called The Afterlight. Um, and all the 
characters you see on screen, all the actors are now dead. So the idea for him was kind of invoking some kind of comparison between the mortality of the flesh and uh, mortality of the film material itself, right? And, you know, I don't want to speak too much for Charlie, but I think by creating this sort of sensational situation where the film exists on 135 millimeter print, that if it's lost or destroyed, it's gone forever, is kind of a signaling to the ephemerality of all film and all media, right? So it's this great conceptual experiment, but it's also just the extreme pleasure to watch. So I hope people who can will come to the cinema to see that, uh, because yes, it's the only way you'll be able to see it. And like I mentioned, there's other stuff playing on 16. Um, the closing night film, Renner Kohlberger's Answering the Sun, is a 60 frames per second film that just really, uh, that's not one that really trans translates to the um, virtual experience very well. So that's also going to be cinema only. And then the centerpiece film, you know, just to create, again, a, a kind of uh, ceremony around the in-person thing, that'll be um, physical only as well. And that's a movie called Nuclear Family um, by uh, Travis and Aaron Wilkerson, who go by the label Creative Agitation. Um, and it's a really kind of scathing investigation of the nuclear death wish at the heart of the American dream and at the heart of American history and politics. Um, Travis, when he was a child, his mother was an activist um, and she was a nuclear activist and she took him uh, before he went to college uh, and the whole family on a road trip uh, to nuclear missile silo sites uh, around the country. So he decided to do the same thing uh, with his family, he and Aaron, and along the way, they meditate on the various ways that America's development of nuclear weapons um, is very much uh, part of the ethos uh, in keeping with the ethos of its founding. Yeah, I mean, these films sound absolutely fascinating, but what I'm also really excited about is all the films you have in the rest of the program by filmmakers are not that well known. Uh, I know that you tweeted that a really big portion of the films were sourced from submissions, which again is something that is maybe a little different from a lot of festivals out there. Uh, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your curatorial philosophy. You know, you've been talking a little bit about the logistics and the institutional aspect of it, but as a curator, what are you looking for and what are you resisting? I'm looking for a lot of things. So let me address the submission thing first. Yeah, I think you'll find that most festivals don't publish this data, but you'll find those who do admit that a very low portion of their um, programming comes from submissions, even if they accept submissions. Uh, and last year's festival for me too was mostly curated because people didn't know what the fest was. I was reaching out to filmmakers I knew, I was programming stuff from other fests and that happened this year as well. But I'm also really pleased to be able to say that um, around 63% uh, by my calculations of the festival program was from blind submissions. Um, and that's exciting to me because it means anybody's voice can enter the conversation. Um, you know, people really understood what the festival was about. And so I was overwhelmed by the relevance of the stuff I was seeing. And I'm looking, uh, like you said, uh, Clinton, I have an affinity for stuff that is a little rough around the edges that can feel messy and beautiful um, in a way that it often uh, is incompatible with the gloss um, uh, that larger festivals try to project. And I'm also looking to put... Um, different experiences side by side. And I love having younger emerging filmmakers um, 
kind of put on the same plane as more established filmmakers, seeing what kind of dialogue can emerge from that, both in terms of the films themselves um, and last year, even online between the filmmakers, you know, it was really gratifying to see the way um, more established filmmakers engaged with the work of their peers. So I'm hoping that in person, um, you know, giving all these voices a chance to interact with each other will, will create its own special sort of uh, feel. Um, wondering if you could share some titles that came from blind submissions that you were totally surprised by. Yeah, absolutely. I would love to shout out a movie called Declarations of Love by a very young filmmaker named Tiff Freakham, who just graduated recently. It's a portrait of her father, not a very flattering one. It never is, is it? In, uh, <laughs> no. in, like, in the experimental docs, um, the portrait of parents is always somehow unflattering anyway sorry go on <laughs> yeah yeah it's very much it's a bit it's a bit unflattering but it's she kind of lays her father's acerbic nature against this california backdrop uh and in the synopsis points to the fact that they're not far from where that uh forest fire i think it is maybe referenced in the film to through news footage not far from where that gender reveal party fire started right right it's in uh yeah in in Redlands, California, right? I watched this one. This was I thought it was really pretty fascinating movie. I love the way that it that she shoots her father's her father in extreme close up sort of so much so that you can't really even tell where what part of the body she's you're seeing on the camera. It's really kinda of, so he you see this landscape of kind of aging flesh. <laughs> it's like so it's not flattering that for sure. And she, I believe, studied at the sensory ethnography lab with uh, at Harvard with Lucy and Casting Taylor and and Brina Paravel, who uh, so there are echoes of that for sure, um, that kind of uh, intensity. But it, it's also very much a, a filmmaker um, expressing their own voice, uh, and that's super exciting. It's also quite funny, and the the father's ranting against like he's he's on the phone with maybe a pharmacy or a doctor who's trying to get him a prescription, and he's just frustrated, and he has this Eastern European accent. He might be he might be German. I'm not sure where or Israeli. I think Austrian potentially. Austrian, yeah. It becomes it becomes quite comical, but also you know the fact that you know that his daughter is shooting him in these mo- these moments of vulnerability. There's this pathos to it uh it's really it's a really fascinating little film for sure a couple more um submissions i'd love to shout out are um so there's a film another portrait of a father um called uh heron 1954 to 2002 that's a very short piece and there are a lot of those in the festival um called uh called yeah it's called heron 1954 to 2002 and the filmmaker is alexis mccrimmon um and it's a really beautiful um 16 millimeter tribute um, to uh, Heron who died um, due to an accidental opioid overdose. It's an abstract and poetic uh, invocation of this person's life that includes a gorgeous still life um, of objects uh, that were important to them. Um, Another film that was submitted but played at a, at a festival prior was um, Joelle Walinga's Self-Portrait, um, which premiered at South By and is 
a montage of footage from webcams, you know, that are primarily used for surveillance purposes, accompanied since they have no original sound by this sort of very beautiful and, and laborious um, uh, and ambient sound design to, as the filmmaker puts it, create a kind of incidental self-portrait of, of humanity's impact on the earth. Yeah, those all sound like really incredible. And uh, there was one film that I know you wanted us to watch and we did. And that just was so surprising to me, which is Squish. Which is a Thai film, correct? Yes, a Thai film by Tulipop, who is extraordinary. There are actually two of his films in the festival this year, both of which he, he submitted. Notes from the Periphery is the other one. But yeah, Squish is an incredibly imaginative film. I'm curious, what, what did you make of it? I really had no idea what to think of it. And the title is so evocative and that, you know, so I was already intrigued and I was curious to see what it would do with like the textural and material kind of dimensions of that word. And what it does is really interesting. I mean, I don't know if there's an easy way to summarize this particular film, but um, it's playing around with a lot of objects and illustrations uh, and animations, um, kind of playing with their tactility, their fragility, uh, their incompleteness, so to speak. And there's a voiceover that kind of animates the figure of this art object that is not complete, but is somehow like halfway sentient uh, or something. And whose language is also a ha incomplete and falling apart and switching into different, into nonsense. Right. Yeah. It's like a chaotic riddle. Yeah. 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 It, it, there's a limerick quality to it. And then there's that moment in the middle though, where there's this documentary element kind of intrudes suddenly and you get sort of a little bit more of a, I don't know if this is a spoiler, spoiler alert for Squish. <laughs> Things get squished. <laughs> yeah, no, that's actually, that does happen. Yeah, but it gets kind of dark too. It also goes from there into this uh, really kind of, I thought, totally original and unsettling idea of uh, an animation committing suicide. And you have this kind of arc of this strange art object that gains sentience and is like speaking for itself and then it's trying to kill itself and there's all these animated sequences that are trying to visualize what an uh, animation suicide looks like um I, yeah i mean this is where it just becomes like it's just so imaginative in it and uh, the movie then whatever 19 minutes i think it of 18 minutes it's just does so many moves in so many different directions in unexpected ways um yeah there's these series of youtube videos of this of the animation just committing suicide in different like styles like i think there's like a, like metal and yeah. then <laughs> but it, I, I, we we say this but like it cannot really be described i don't i i'm not going to pretend that i understand what is going on in this movie but there's something going on that's extremely compelling there's like you know extremely compelling it's compelling and uh and there's very little like it that i've seen outside of you know extreme maybe it reminded me it's maybe of like extreme art from the like japanese art from the 90s maybe but with like a very digital edge yeah 
I mean, what I, I, I don't want to read too much into it because I do think it's very free, but that little political kind of component where it's talking about this artist whose animations I think were banned and it's adapting, a portion of the film is adapted from an article about that animator from the 1990s. Um, it, I mean, it made me think of the power of, like the double meanings of the word animation is obviously a big part of the theme of this film, but it also made me think of the ways in which uh, states like fear art, you know, and in a way art is as powerful as they think, but in other ways it completely isn't. And this is a tangent, but somehow I thought of when I was in 11th grade, um, we had this political science textbook. We had a political science textbook that um, had throughout political cartoons from like just India's, you know, papers across history. And there was a controversy about a couple cartoons that were, uh, you know, that particular government at that time, you know, there was this controversy that they were offensive. And so the books were withdrawn and the cartoons were changed and then put back in circulation. It was this big scandal and it was a very formative kind of moment for me as a 16-year-old uh, you know, studying political science and having this happen to my textbook. And it there was this explosive conversation about like satire and art. Um, and, it, and it just reminded me of these kinds of, uh, yeah, the ways in which people in power fear, you know, like line drawings and little doodles. And um, so it, it evoked that for me. I don't want to, again, I don't want to like, Right, do a whole thesis of this wonderful little film. <laughs> but there's also like crazy things being squished, you know, and like mush and disgusting body yeah. horror things. <laughs> it's fun to watch for its playfulness yes. and its length. It's so complex and there's so much to get out of it. And it's also about depression and the pandemic, you know. Um, and it's so it's actually playing in this um, in this section. Again, these, these programs are called Waves. And it's this, this one is uh, wave 13, I, I am feeling unwell. And all of the films kind of have some aspect of, of uh, mental uh, health issues, um, sometimes owing to the pandemic, sometimes owing to the internet, uh, sometimes both. Um, and I wanna make sure I also plug the, the feature in, in that wave called Elephant by uh, Maria Judis. The title ends up being a reference to the way elephants um, grieve and mourn and it's a film about a woman who it's kind of a docu-fiction thing it's a film about a woman who witnesses um the murder of a young uh black boy by a police officer and then becomes um uh, a sort of a shut-in after that you know obviously having been extremely disturbed um and over the course of the film has uh, a series of friends over and family and, and a series of conversations um, around what it means to uh, live in society and try and function in society while acknowledging and internalizing all of the horrible things that happen. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a film about grief that ends up also being about healing. Um, and there are a lot of, there's so many interesting aspects to it. The character kind of like keeps amassing plants in her apartment more and more throughout the film. Um, uh, which is, I feel like, something that happened for a lot of people during the pandemic. And uh, also, there's a, a series, there's this sort of, like, recurring motif of text on screen of various recipes. Um, 
of uh, food uh, that the the filmmaker is making and having with friends. Um, so it's got this uh, really almost spiritual quality um, and is just so um, representative, I think, of the kind of um, just vulnerable and honest work that can be made with low resources in this mode of um, playing with the idea of documentary and reality. Yeah, that looks that looked really fascinating. I want to check that one out for sure. Another film that you mentioned, other films titled Elephant, but um, which reminded me of Lake Forest Park, the film by Kirsty Van Wordal. Yeah, um, beautiful film, haunting. Kirsty Van Wordal. Yeah, a beautiful hunting film. Yes, that is that is that reminded me a lot of Gus Van Sant's Elephant, which uh, is also uh, seems to be tangentially about the death of a young, of a young man it opens with this radio with a voiceover you hear a radio in the background of a report of a news report of some teenagers finding the body of a one of their classmates and not reporting it because they didn't know what to do about it the film is like working in a kind of a post james benning <laughs> mode but it also reminded me a lot of some of kelly reichardt's films that take place in the pacific northwest it's shot in, and takes place in seattle doesn't feature dialogue. It's it's a lot of static shots of landscapes and people moving in landscapes. As it follows River's Edge, right? River's Edge is the name of the movie, and it follows a group of teenagers as they um, as they uh, kind of navigate this space, really. And it's unclear exactly what what their relationship is to each other what's happening to them not much happens in the movie but it definitely evokes this sense of dread and a sense of being a kid i guess being a teenager absolutely and it's an incredibly enigmatic it's like this series of as you said um silent tableaus well silent with a, with a with a beautiful score by yes. Marissa anderson the guitar player from portland yeah yeah sorry dialogue free um and uh, evoke that evoke a lot more than than they explain, which I guess is you know is part of the haunting quality. And I think the Benning um, invocation is apt, particularly considering um, I think the filmmaker went to CalArts and must have studied with Benning. I think he's a creative. He's credited as a creative advisor on this film. Okay, yes, that makes sense. Um, but again, it's also you know a, a young artist expressing their own voice um, entirely with which I, I is something I love to see again this kind of nod to the history of avant-garde but um, in a way that re-energizes it before we wrap things up I did want to ask an extremely basic question that makes me feel like uh, an old person but uh, where did the name for the festival come from I, I'm glad you asked it's a very old uh, source, I'll say. So I was, uh, as I said, I'm from Michigan. I, I was working in a used uh, bookstore um, in Detroit, uh, a four-story bookstore called John King Books that everyone should check out if they ever visit there. Um, just sort of saving up money, trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life, dreaming of possibilities. And uh, one day while slacking off, I came across this book of poetry from 1930 a uh, first edition that had never been republished um, called Prismatic Ground. 
um, by Marguerite Young, who's this incredible cult author. She taught at the New School. She has a great epic novel called Miss Macintosh, My Darling, um, that I think Vonnegut called the greatest book of the 20th century. But her first published book, I think, was Prismatic Ground, this volume of poetry um, that I just found incredibly affecting. Uh, and in the poem that uses that phrase, prismatic ground is referring to the sea and a girl looking out on the sea. And I think if people look into sort of dig into the program, they'll find I have a lot of love for, for poetry um, as well as film. And that's a big part of the spirit of the festival. Um, so yeah, as soon as I sort of found that book, I was, I didn't know what yet, but I was like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to steal that title for something. Well, it's so interesting. That's and I think good, this, yeah, you know, the structure of the festival, also the titles that you give to the different sections, this organization into waves. Yeah. Like stanzas almost, right? Yeah. Often, often they're references to the films. Um, uh, in some cases, they're allusions to everything. Again, poetry is a big one for me. So there's a wave called Love is a Cry of Anguish, which is a Maya Angelou reference. And then there's in the prison of his days slash teach a free man how to praise which is from a poem by um auden uh, memorializing yates so uh, by no means does the audience have to be as into poetry as i am but that's where i draw a lot of inspiration that's kind of a you know that brings me to maybe our final question um you know I'm curious what you have sort of gleaned about the world of experimental documentary from putting together these two editions and what you want people to take away from this. You know, what are your kind of hopes uh, for the festival? Um, you know, I, I've gleaned that. I think, you know, some of my hunches were right, that there's way more of this work being made than there are currently platforms to serve it, that people making this work are are doing it for some of the most meaningful reasons to explore the very form of cinema itself, to process trauma, um, to get at um, theoretical sort of considerations of anti-imperialism and abolition. And, um, and it's happening um, so uh, broadly, I find that, um, I don't know, I just I want people to understand that um, this work isn't uh, quote unquote for anybody. It's for anybody who, who is interested in giving it a chance. And I think that if you don't normally watch experimental film, I'm sure there are plenty of uh, you know film comment listeners who, who maybe have seen some, but not really dived in, give it a chance. Um, you know, If you can come in person, I think that'll be super special. But also again, the films will be free online at prismaticground.com from May 4th to 8th. Um, just, don't um, make assumptions. Be okay with not understanding a film, right? Often the magic of these films is partly that they're not easily and quickly understood. And that opens itself up to so many different ways of thinking. So I would say I, what I want people to take away is just to allow themselves to experience something new um, and uh, give themselves a chance to respond to it uh, in ways that might be unexpected. Sounds like fun. And a great note to end on. So thanks for joining us, Inay. We're very excited about Prismatic Ground uh, year two. We hope people seek it out. And yeah, good luck for next week. Thank you, Devika. Thank you, Clinton. And uh, I'll just mention also for people who have subscriptions to the Criterion channel, you can watch 10 shorts from the first year uh, in a collection called Prismatic Ground Presents. And that's worth checking out as well. Great. And we'll, we'll provide a link to that in our show notes as well. Full lineup, 
and tickets at prismaticground.com. Sorry. Just do all the plugs. We'll do, we'll, <laughs> we should do one of those ads that's like, Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> one time only. All right. Thank you so much for joining us, Ine, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon, hopefully. Thank you. The Film Comment Podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com.